Well, good. We're going to go ahead and get started with our afternoon. We've got a number of interesting things that we're going to be looking at. Uh, just before we get started, let's bow our heads. We'll have a word of prayer. Father, once again, we thank you that we're able to be here. Thank you for this opportunity to learn. And we do pray that we'll be able to apply the things that we've learned to, to make a difference for your kingdom and for our own personal spiritual growth. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This afternoon, we're going to be looking at some characteristics that make for a healthy church. Now, what's interesting about this is these characteristics are not only true for churches, but they're also very true for individuals. What makes us a healthy Christian, a healthy Adventist Christian? There are these 10 characteristics that we're going to be looking at. So I'm going to get right to it. The first characteristic is this. We need to have a clear identity. Characteristic number one. We need to have a clear identity. Revelation chapter 12, verse 7. These are familiar words. And the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the remnant or the rest of offspring who keep the commandments of God and they have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, in this verse, who's the dragon? Dragon is Satan, right? And he's off to make war with the woman. Who does the woman represent? The church. Why is it that in prophecy a woman represents the church? Got any ideas for that? Why does a woman in Bible prophecy represent a church? Yes, Paul speaks of Christ as being the groom and the church as being the bride. And you can find that theme uh, several times in Scripture, all the way back to the Old Testament, where God speaks to Israel and saying, I'm your husband and you've left me type thing. Now, something else about the idea of a church representing a woman. Of course, in, in Revelation, you've got two women described. The one is in Revelation chapter 12, the same chapter. Early on in the chapter, you descri it describes a woman standing upon the moon, clothed in white. She has a crown of 12 stars. Now, who does that woman represent in chapter 12? The one standing upon the moon represents the pure church, right? What do the 12 stars in her crown represent? The number 12 is significant in prophecy. Why is 12 significant? Leaders, the church, you've got the 12 tribes of the Old Testament, you've got the 12 apostles of the New Testament. So the woman has a crown of 12 stars representing God's true church. In the Old Testament era, it would be the 12 tribes. In the New Testament era, it would be the 12 apostles. She's clothed with the sun. Now, what's the significance of a garment being clothed? A garment, is, she's clothed in the sun. What, what do you think the significance of that could be? The righteousness of Jesus. The sun there represents Christ. The Old Testament says, The sun, S-U-N, shall arise with healing in his wings. Speaking of Christ. She's standing upon the moon. What do you think the, the moon would represent in Revelation 12? Scripture, light. Where does the moon get its light from? The sun. It's a reflection of the sun. And if the sun is Jesus, where do we find the clearest reflection of Jesus? were the clearest reflection. You can get a reflection of Christ, but where would you find the clearest? In his, in his word. So the clearest reflection of Jesus is found in his word. And what is the woman standing upon? What, what must the church be standing upon? The word of God. Does that make sense? So the moon represents the foundation. What is she standing upon? It's the word of God, where we find Christ reflected. Okay. Uh, something else interesting about woman in, in prophecy, it's all over the place, even in the New Testament, especially in the New Testament, you find a, a number of interesting points here. Um, uh, if, you, if you look in, in uh, Luke, Luke chapter, I believe it's 17. Yes, Luke chapter 17. And if you look at verse 34, 
Luke 17, verse 34. Uh, we're still talking about the church representing, uh, or the woman representing the church. Luke chapter 17, verse 34. Would someone read that verse for us? Luke 17, 34. Read all the way through to verse 36. Okay, now what is Jesus talking about here in this parable? What event is he describing? Or speaking of the second coming of Christ. And Jesus says, it's going to be like it was in the days of Lot. And then he goes on and he says, in that night there will be two men in one bed. The one will be taken, the other will be left. How many of you have heard this verse used to support the idea of a secret rapture? Have you heard that before? Okay, this is one of the favorite verses that's been used. But if you just take a little step further and think about it, um, what does sleep in the Bible often represent? Death. There are two men asleep, the one's taken, the other's left. What event do you think has been highlighted in that verse? Resurrection of the righteous, right? The one will be taken, the other will be left. And then the second example that Jesus used in verse 35, there are two woman grinding at the mill, the ones taken, the others left. In Bible prophecy, what does a woman represent? Church. So there's two kinds of churches when Jesus comes. What does the grinding at the mill represent? What do you do with, um, with the mill? What are you grinding? What are you grinding for? You grind it into flour. What was flour in biblical times? What was flour principally used for? Making bread. What does bread represent in the Bible? The Word of God. So there's two groups of churches, two churches, both claiming to be preaching the Word of God, but Jesus says the one will be ready and will be taken, the other will be lost. And then the third example that Jesus used, verse 36, two men will be in the field. The field represents the world, the one is taken and the other is lost. So Jesus is emphasizing that at the second coming there are these two distinct groups. Something else that's interesting, still on the theme of a woman representing a church, in the Gospel of Mark, you have the story of um, a man by the name of Jairus who comes to Jesus one day and he says, please come with me. My little girl is at the point of death. You remember that story? So Jesus says, okay, I'm going to come with you. So Jesus is on his way and there's a big crowd of people around Jesus and they're all bumping into him and they're pressing up against Christ. And while he's traveling to Jairus' house, there is another woman well, there's a woman that comes to Jesus who has a flowing of blood and she reaches out and she touches the hem of Christ's garment. Do you remember that story? Now, here's the amazing part about the story. The Bible tells us how long she had this, this flowing of blood. Does anybody know how long it was? Twelve years. Very interesting, the number, twelve. So she reaches out and she touches the hem of Christ's garment. What is... What does a garment represent? Righteousness. She touches the hem of Christ's garment and immediately the blood ceases to flow. And then, of course, Jesus stops and he says, who touched me? And the people say, you know, how can you ask that? Everybody's bumping up against you. And Jesus says, no, somebody touched me for I felt virtue or power go out of me. And then she came forward. She confessed the whole thing. Now, while she's talking to Jesus, a servant comes from Jairus' house. And the servant says to Jairus, don't trouble the master anymore. Your little girl is dead. And when Jesus hears this, he says to Jairus, don't be afraid, only believe. 
And then Jesus goes with Jairus back to his house and he gets to his house and all of the people are weeping and wailing and making a terrible noise. And Jesus says, don't, don't make this fuss for the little girl, she's not dead, she's only sleeping. And then the people laugh at Jesus because they know she's really dead. But then Jesus takes Peter, James and John and the parents of the little girl and they go into the room and Jesus takes the little girl by the hand and he says, little girl, arise. And she's resurrected from the dead. Now this is the amazing part. Mark tells us how old the little girl was. Guess how old she was? She was 12 years of age. Now 12 represents the church. 12 tribes, 12 apostles. Now the amazing thing about this story is you have Jesus in the middle. You have an older woman that has this flowing of blood for 12 years. She comes in contact with Jesus. The blood stops. But then Jesus goes and he resurrects a little girl, 12 years of age, back to life. Really what this is a description of is the transition between the Old Testament church and the New Testament church. You see, the woman that had the flowing of blood for 12 years represents the Old Testament church with the continual sacrifices, a continual flowing of blood. But when you reach out and you touch Christ's garment, His righteousness, there is no longer a need for a sacrifice. And the veil was rent from top to bottom in the sanctuary. And right at that point, what does Jesus do? He raises up the New Testament church, symbolized by the little girl that's 12 years of age. So this idea of a woman representing a church is all over the scriptures. And you can find it in the parables that Jesus tells. One of the last example of this is the woman being the church and Jesus being the bridegroom. Those famous words in John chapter 14, 1 to 3, where Jesus says, Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am there you may be also. Now when Jesus said those words, he was on the Mount of Olives with his disciples. And as they were looking down into Jerusalem, you read this in the book, Desire of Ages, as they were looking down into the, to the city of Jerusalem, there was actually a marriage procession that was taking place. You could see the lights as they were traveling along. And Jesus, with that in view, told his disciples, don't be worried. I'm going to go prepare a place for you, and then I'm going to come back and receive you unto myself. Now, the, under, the disciples understood what Jesus was talking about because it was in the context of marriage. Back in Bible times, when a young man proposed to a young woman and she accepted his proposal for marriage, he would then go back to his father's house and he would build on a room onto his father's house. Once the room was finished, then he would go with all of his friends and much pomp and fanfare. He would go back to his bride's house and he would escort his bride back to his father's house. It was at the father's house where the actual wedding ceremony would take place. They would then live in the little room that was added on while he went out and built them their own permanent home. Now with that in mind, Jesus said to his disciples, I'm going to go and prepare a place, build on a room in my father's house. And when it's all finished, I'm going to come receive you unto myself. You've all heard about the marriage supper of the Lamb in the Father's house. And Jesus comes and He receives us, the bride, and He takes us back to heaven. How long do we live in the Father's house? For a thousand years. What happens at the end of the thousand years? We go out and we build our own houses and we inhabit them. So Jesus gave that promise to the disciples in John 14, 1-3 in the context of marriage. And they understood what He meant. I mean... Would a young man propose to a young woman 
go through all the trouble of adding on a room on his father's house, but then forget to go pick up his bride. That wouldn't make sense. Jesus is saying, I'm not going to forget you because I'm preparing a place for you in my father's house, and then I'm going to come receive you. Now, something else that's interesting, one day the Pharisees told Jesus the story about a woman who was married, and then her husband died, and then she married another man, and he died, and another one, and he died, all the way up to seven. Remember that story? And they tried to trick Jesus, so they said in the resurrection, who's she going to be married to? Whose uh, wife is she going to be? And Jesus said, you err, not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God, but in the kingdom we shall be as the angels. They neither marry, they neither marry nor given in marriage. Now that's very interesting, because in the kingdom, who's the wife? Who's the bride? The church. Who's the groom? Christ. So in heaven, who we married to? We married to Jesus. The relationship that we have on earth that's as intimate and close as a marriage relationship is a type of the relationship Christ is going to have with us individually in heaven. A very unique, very precious type of relationship. Now, I don't think when you get to heaven, if you're married, you're going to get divorce papers. Um, but the, the whole idea or the whole understanding of marriage as we have it now is going to be different in the kingdom because Christ is really the groom and the church is really the bride. And so we will come to this special, unique, intimate relationship and experience with Jesus that'll be far superior to any other relationship that we will have. We'll have many good, solid relationships in the kingdom, but nothing like the relationship that we have with Jesus. So this idea of a woman representing the church is very significant and it's found throughout scripture over and over again. So getting back to our point, Characteristic number one, we need to have a clear identity. We need to, uh, first of all, recognize that the dragon is angry with us, the church, all right, the woman. And he goes to make war with the remnant of her offspring. And then we have a description of who the remnant are. They are the ones who keep the commandments of God and they have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, in this verse, there are two obvious characteristics or character traits as to who the remnant are, but there's a third one that's not that obvious. What are the two obvious characteristics of the remnant here in this verse? Those who what? Keep the commandments of God, and what else do they have? Testimony of Jesus. Those are the two obvious ones. But can you see a third identifying characteristic as to who the remnant is? There, you got it. The dragon is enraged with them. So not only do they keep the commandments and have the testimony of Jesus, but they also experience the wrath of the dragon, right? That, that's the identity of God's true remnant. So if you have a group of people that claim to keep the commandments of God and they claim to have the testimony of Jesus, but the dragon's not upset with them, maybe they don't really understand who they're supposed to be. Does that make sense? Because if you have God's people truly keeping His commandments, motivated by love, and they're following the testimony of, the G of Jesus, they're always going to have the wrath of the dragon. The devil's going to be upset. So that's an interesting point to note. Now, keeping the commandments of God. How many commandments are there? There are 10 commandments. And the 10 commandments were written on how many tables of stone? Why do you think they were written on two tables of stone? Was it too much just to put on one? Was that an accident? What? They separated four on the one side, six on the other. Now, why that distinction? Okay, so the first four have to do with what? 
our relationship with God, and the last six have to do with our relationship with our fellow man. Now, this is amazing. These things don't just happen by accident. You know, when you see these things in Scripture, it helps to show you that Scripture is inspired. Uh, what number in the Scriptures represent God? What's God's number? Seven. What does seven represent? Completion or perfection. What number? Here's an amazing part. What number represents man? Six. Why does the number six represent man? Not complete, just, just, but man was created on which day of the week? The sixth day of the week. Um, the mark of the beast is the number of a man, and his number is six, six, six. In addition to seven being connected with God, what other number is connected with God? Number one, God is one. There's another number. Not ten. Ten would be his law, but three. How is three connected with God? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The amazing thing about the mark of the beast, 666, what's, what's man's number? Six. What's three? The Godhead. It's man's attempts to usurp God's position. It's the counterfeit trinity. You can read about the counterfeit trinity in Revelation 16, and here they are, the dragon, Satan, the beast, the papacy, and the false prophet, apostate Protestantism. They seek the place of God, and there's a number of parallels between this counterfeit and the genuine. But anyway, the point is this, the number six represents man. It's man's number. Now, this is what's amazing. The first four of the Ten Commandments have to do with our relationship with God. The last six of the commandments have to do with what? Our relationship with our fellow man. How many commandments have to do with our relationship with our fellow man? Six, because that's man's number, right? You see it. So the first four have to do with our relationship with God. The last six have to do with our relationship with our fellow man. Now, this is something else that's interesting. Uh, there's all these kind of interesting little symbols that you can find in Scripture. What was the first miracle that Jesus performed? Turning water into wine in a place called Cana of Galilee. All right? Now, there was this wedding. What does a wedding represent in the Bible? Who's the bridegroom? Christ. Who's the bride? The church. The wedding represents Christ's reception of his bride and his kingdom. So there's a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And in order for this wedding to be successful, what's needed? Wine. What does the wine represent? The atoning sacrifice of Jesus. That's why you have the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's the blood of Christ that makes it possible. Something else interesting connected with that. When God created Adam in the beginning, who does Adam represent? Jesus referred to as the second Adam, right? Second Adam. How did God create the bride of Adam, the wife of Adam? What did God have to do? This is amazing. How did, what did God have to do? Adam had to go to sleep. What does sleep represent in the Bible? Death. And what did God have to do to the side of Adam? Opened up the side and took something out, a rib. And what did he do with the rib? He made the bride, made Eve. The second Adam fell asleep on the cross, the sleep of death. His side was opened up, and what came out of the side of Christ? Water and blood. It's through the blood of Christ, through his atoning sacrifice, through the moving of the Holy Spirit, symbolized by the water, that the bride of Christ is created, is made. So you see all of these symbols throughout Scripture with a woman and the church and all the rest of it. Anyway, back to the wedding. So the wedding's taking place, and the wine, the literal there is the wine failed. 
So the mother of Jesus comes and says, you know, we have no wine. What can we do? This is embarrassing. The wedding can't go forward. Something else interesting to note, and it might be the same in Canada, but it was the responsibility of the groom's family to provide the wine. That's kind of interesting too. The wine, with reference to the marriage supper of the Lamb, is provided by the groom's family. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The sacrifice is provided by Jesus. So the wine fails. And so the mother comes to Jesus and says, what are we going to do? Jesus says to her, what have I to do with thee, woman? Mine hour is not yet come. Now, by the way, that's a very respectful term back in Bible times. Remember one of the commandments is honor your mother and your father. Jesus did that. Uh, it's actually a very respectful. If I say to my mom, what have I have to do with you, woman? She'll give me a clout, right? That's the way it'll happen. But not it was just different. So it was actually a very respectful term. So Jesus says, what if I, I can't do? What do you want me to do? Mine hour is not yet come. Very interesting. When does Jesus say that his hour is come? Just before the Garden of Gethsemane, he's with his disciples, right? He picks up the grape juice. He says, this is the testimony. This is the covenant shedding my blood. He says, now the hour is come. It's kind of interesting. Just before Christ sheds his blood, he says, now my hour has come. Now the time has come. But three and a half years before that, he says to his mother, my hour has not yet come. Nevertheless, Jesus still provides by turning the water into wine. Now here's an interesting part. Uh, John tells us that there were six stone water jugs that were used for the purifying of the Jews, ceremonial cleansing. They would have these six stone water jugs. They would fill them up for the washing of their hands, the washing of plates, but ceremonial cleaning, not just general cleaning. And there were six of them. How many? Six. What does six represent? Man's number. Jesus tells the servants to fill them full of water, and he performs the miracle. And he tells the servants to draw out the water, and somehow it becomes wine, and take it to the governor of the feast. The first person that had to see the wine after, you know, after Jesus performed the miracle was the governor of the feast. Why? Because the governor of the feast had to give his approval before it could be given to the guests. So the servant took the wine to the governor of the feast, and when the governor of the feast tasted the wine, most likely the father or the groom, when he tasted the wine, he said, man, this is good. Most people put out the good stuff first, and then that which is inferior later. Now, we're not talking about alcohol here. This was pure grape juice, especially because of the symbolism. The reason the groom said most people put out the best stuff first is because back in Bible times, when do you get the best grape juice? freshly squeezed from the vine. The inferior grape juice would be, they would have some kind of way of um, dehydrating the juice until it became a thick syrupy type paste and that add water to it, kind of like concentrate and they'd mix it up. It wasn't as good as the real thing. But you put out the good stuff first and then the mix on later on as time goes on. But in this case, the best is kept at the last. Now, here's the amazing thing. This first miracle that Jesus performed, he opened to his disciples. He revealed to his disciples what his mission really was all about. They were looking for him to establish a temporal kingdom here on this earth. That's not why Christ came. Jesus came in order for the married supper of the Lamb to take place. And in order for that to happen, Jesus had to provide the wine. Now, the amazing thing is that the miracle of the water turned into wine took place in six stone water jugs. In order for Jesus to be able to provide the wine for the marriage supper of the Lamb, he had to take upon himself humanity. Jesus became a man, symbolized by the six stone water jugs.
He performs this miracle. In other words, he gives his life a sacrifice for sin. And when he rose from the dead and Mary was with him in the Garden of Gethsemane, remember what Jesus said to her? Do not cling to me or do not detain me for I have not yet ascended to my Father in heaven. Why did Jesus have to ascend to his Father in heaven? Because he had to get from his Father, the governor of the feast, that the wine was enough, that the wedding could proceed. And after Jesus received from his Father that his sacrifice was sufficient, then he came back and then he received the worship of his disciples. So in that first miracle in Cain of Galilee, you have a microcosm of what Christ's mission really was. What was the purpose for him coming? And all of the little details kind of fit together quite remarkably. Okay, yes, sure. Well, here's, Jesus says, no man takes my life from me. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it up again. But the angel came down from heaven and said, your father calls you. Now, the power that, you know, Jesus was dead. He couldn't hear anything. So there must have been something that, some power that enabled Christ to come forth. But in essence, it was Christ who resurrected himself. I, it's the mystery of the resurrection. We don't quite understand. But Paul also says the same power that raised Christ from the dead will so also work within us so that we live a newness of life. So Christ says, I lay down my life and I take it up again. And then the angel says, your father calls you and Jesus takes up his life. He comes forth from the grave. So that's kind of the best we have for, for that. Yes. Uh, in the Gospels, where the angel comes down and says, yeah, I don't know the verse right of hand, but uh, where Jesus, where the angel calls and says, son of, I think it's son of man or son of, of God, your father calls you. If it's not in the Gospels, it's the spirit of prophecy, but I'm pretty sure it's in the Gospel somewhere. Okay, so we're looking at the two characteristics. They keep the commandments of God. The first four, our relationship with God, motivated by love, and the last six, our relationship with our fellow man. And they have the testimony of Jesus Christ. What is the testimony of Jesus? Revelation chapter 19, verse 10 says, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now, what is the spirit of prophecy? Do we have a clear understanding of what that is? Well, let's go to the very first part of Revelation. Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1, and we'll read the first few verses here. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. It says, It's the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him, to show unto his servants things that must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John. So you can pause right here. The revelation of God the Father, which he gave to Jesus. So God the Father is the fountainhead of all truth. This truth then comes to Jesus. Jesus then sends it by an angel to his servant John. We spoke about that the other day. Then it goes on here in verse 2, who bore witness of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. So here John says he bore witness of the testimony of Jesus Christ. What is a testimony? What is a testimony in the court of law? What would be a testimony in a court of law? Okay, somebody is giving an eyewitness account. So he was there, and he's giving a testimony about something. Now, in the context of the plan of redemption, is there some kind of a court case that's taking place? What kind of a court case is taking place, and who's involved in this court case? 
God's character, okay? So God is, I mean, Satan has made certain accusations against God's character, okay? How is the testimony of Jesus vindicating the character of God? Did Jesus live without sinning? Yes, he did. Satan also said, you're not really a God of love. How did Jesus demonstrate that God is a God of love? He gave his life. So the testimony of Jesus is answering these false accusations that Satan has against God's character. And the church, those who receive the testimony of Jesus, have, they receive the testimony that Jesus has to say about God the Father. So they believe that Jesus, what Jesus says about the Father is true, that he's a God of love and he's a God of mercy, and Christ demonstrated that in his life. So to receive the testimony of Jesus is to believe everything Jesus has to say. Does that make sense? To believe everything Jesus has to say. Now, how does Jesus communicate with us? Through the Holy Spirit and through the gift of prophecy, by speaking to the prophets, by revealing to them in dreams and visions. So the testimony of Jesus, those that have the commandments of God, and the testimony of Jesus, this group of people believe everything Jesus has to say. They are fully committed to doing whatever Jesus says. They believe the testimony of Jesus, and how does Jesus speak to them? Through the gift of prophecy. So they understand the prophecies. They understand Revelation, they understand Daniel. Does that make sense? Are you with me on that? What the testimony of Jesus is? It's the spirit of prophecy. It's receiving the testimony that Jesus has with reference to what his father's like and with reference to what he wants us to do. To have the testimony of Jesus is to receive what Jesus is saying. Receive it and make it our own. Okay, so this is a characteristic of the remnant. They have a clear identity. They need to know who they are. Now, here's an interesting statement from the book Acts of the Apostles, page 9. It says, The church is God's appointed agency for the salvation of men. It was organized for what reason? For service, and its mission is to carry the gospel to the world. So we were established, the church was established for the purpose of service and to share the gospel with the world. That's why we are here. Revelation chapter 14, 12 gives us an additional characteristic of God's people at the end of time. Here is the patience of the saints. Another word for patience there is endurance. Here is the endurance of the saints. Here's the patience of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and they have the faith of Jesus. Do you think at the end of time, God's people will need to have patience or endurance? Yes, they will. Matter of fact, Jesus says, He that endures until the end, the same shall be saved. So endurance is needed. Also notice that not only do they keep God's commandments. Oh, by the way, let me just add one more thing with reference to that. Did Jesus tell a parable about uh, a woman that had coins and she lost one of them? How many coins did she have? There were 10, and one of them was lost. Where did she lose the coin? In the house. And she had to rediscover the coin. Was there something that the church had lost with reference to the Ten Commandments that had to be found again? Which one of the commandments? The fourth commandment. Kind of interesting. Anyway, back here. Um, not only do they keep the commandments of God, but they have the faith of Jesus. Do you think there's a difference between having the faith of Jesus and having faith in Jesus? What do you think the difference is? What, what kind of faith is needed in order to be saved? The faith of Jesus or faith in Jesus? 
Whoever believes in me shall be saved. So in order to have your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life, you need to have faith in Jesus, meaning that you need to believe that Jesus is your personal Savior, and you need to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and you confess your sins and give your life to Him. You need to have faith in Jesus. But what kind of faith is needed at the end of time? Not only faith in Jesus, but have the faith of Jesus. Now, what's the difference? Well, can you think of an experience in the life of Jesus that demonstrates more than any other what the faith of Jesus is? Not faith in Jesus. Jesus, I'm not talking about Jesus having faith in himself, but what is the faith of Jesus? What kind of faith did Jesus have that the remnant need to have at the end of time? Self-sacrificing. Can you think of an experience in the life of Jesus that demonstrates that? Going to Calvary, a little more specific, Gethsemane. What specifically about Gethsemane demonstrates the faith of Jesus? Not my will, thy will be done. You see, that's the faith of Jesus. The faith of Jesus is full submission to whatever the will of the Father is, whatever it is. So the remnant at the end of time, not only do they keep God's commandments, but in order for them to endure to the very end, because of the wrath of the dragon, they need to have the same attitude of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, where they say, Lord, not my will be done, but thy will be done. Full and complete submission to the will of God. That's the only kind of faith that'll sustain them through the final events that'll take place just prior to the coming of Jesus. So, Keeping God's commandments, having the faith of Jesus, having the testimony of Jesus, these are all characteristics of God's people at the last days. We need to have a clear identity as a people. We need to know who we are and what it is God has called us to do. Now, this is an interesting statement. The final objective of all efforts of the Seventh-day Adventist church is that of preaching the gospel and preparing men and women to meet the Lord. There is something in Scripture that we call present truth. Now, what's the difference between truth and present truth? Well, let's think about it for a minute. When Noah was building the ark, and he began to preach, and he told everybody to get into the ark because the flood was coming, was that truth? Yes. But if I preach that message today, that a flood's coming, and you need to get into the ark, would that be present truth for today. That was present truth in Noah's day, right? But it's not present truth today. In other words, present truth always has a time element attached to it. If there's no time element attached to it, it's not present truth. When Jesus began his public ministry, what did he say? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was a present truth message. It had a time element connected to it. So likewise today, we have a present truth message that has to be preached because of where we are in the stream of time. That's why Jesus uses the example of Noah when he parallels the experience of the last days. There was a present truth message that has to be preached. So as Adventists, we have a present truth message, a present truth gospel that has to go to all the world to prepare people for the second coming of Christ. Now, if you go in your Bibles to 2 Peter, we learn a little bit more about this present truth message. Second Peter, and we'll look over here in verse, let's take a look at verse, uh, Second Peter chapter 3, 
I'm just trying to think where a good spot will be for us to... Oh, let's start in, let, let's just start in verse 1. It says, Beloved, I now write unto you this second epistle, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remember, reminder, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and the commandments of us, the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3, Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of His coming? For since our fathers have fallen asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Now that's important there. Peter says in the last days, there are going to be people saying, Jesus is not going to come because all things continue as they were. In other words, there's been no change. We can't bank on the prophecies. Then he goes on. Verse 5, For this they will willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are preserved for fire unto the day of judgment and the perdition of the ungodly men. But, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. Now, what is the context here? What is, what is Peter talking about? What is he talking about in the context? What's the subject matter that's under consideration? Second coming of Christ, okay? We all with that? That's there. Then he says, now don't forget this. He says, don't forget, one day with the Lord is as how long? A thousand years and a thousand years is as a day. Now, when you're dealing with prophetic time, when you're dealing with prophetic time, one prophetic day is equal to how long? One literal year. But here Peter gives us a little bit of a different perspective. He says, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day. Now, why is that so significant? Why is that mentioned in the context of the second coming? And Peter makes it very clear. He says, don't forget this. I don't want you to be ignorant of this one thing. So he's emphasizing this. Don't forget one day with the Lord is as a thousand years. Now, here's an interesting principle. How old is the earth? About 6,000 years. Now, what happened after the sixth day of creation? You had the Sabbath, a rest. What happens when Jesus comes? We've got a thousand-year Sabbath, a rest in heaven. The principle that we see in Scripture is this. Work for six, rest for one. Work for six, rest for one. Work for six days, rest for the seventh. God told the Israelites to work their fields for six years. Let the field be dormant the seventh year. And at seven means completion. So the great controversy ends after 7,000 years. What happens at the end of the 1,000 years? The new Jerusalem comes down from God out of heaven, all the redeemed, the wicked are resurrected, the final judgment, and then they are destroyed. Then God creates a new heavens and a new earth. So the great week of time. Right now, we're at the end of 6,000 years. We're not sure exactly when that time period ends, but we, we're right there. And the next thing that's going to happen is the 1,000-year Sabbath. Now let me ask you something else. Is God particular? Is God particular as to when the Sabbath starts? I mean, right now, the weekly Sabbath. Is God particular as to when the Sabbath starts? He is particular. Or when the sun sets, the Sabbath starts, right? Does God want us to keep the Sabbath when the sun sets? Is He particular about that? Yes, He is. Now, do you think God's particular about making sure? that his millennial Sabbath is kept complete. You think it would be? I do. I do. 
You see, the earth is about 6,000 years old. And we've been told that Christ could have come before now. But there is a point in time where God says, so far and no further. There is, if you like, a backstop point. Jesus can come before this, depending upon the gospel going to all the world and the church being ready for Jesus to come. He can come before this point in time. But there is a point, in other words, Christ, not, he's not going to wait forever. Let's just say the church never is revived. She never does the work God is calling her to do. Will Jesus have to wait indefinitely to come? No, he's got people in the grave that he's going to have to resurrect. He's not going to let them stay in the grave forever. At some point in time, God is going to say, that's it, I'm coming, ready or not. In my thinking, that 6,000-year period, or that, that time, is at the end of that 6,000-year mark, exactly. That's the, that's the end. But we can, Jesus can come before that. Does that make sense? In other words, we can influence the coming of Christ by doing the work He's calling us to do. But if we don't do anything, God's not going to wait forever. At this point in time, when the Sabbath begins, so to speak, Jesus will come to get His own and you'll have the 1,000-year Sabbath in heaven. Then the great controversy is all put together at the end of that 1,000-year period. So, the gospel that has to be preached to all the world is in the context of the time in which we are living. And we're living right at the end of that 6,000-year period. Where exactly, we don't know, but we're right there. Jesus is soon to come. So there is a present truth message, present truth gospel that has to be preached to the world. That's the message God is calling us to preach. That's why God raised up the Seventh-day Adventist Church. God did not raise up the Seventh-day Adventist Church for Adventists. He raised up the Adventist Church for Baptists and Presbyterians and Catholics and Lutherans and people of no church whatsoever. He raised up the Adventist Church to prepare a people to meet Him in peace. And of course, the message He gave us is the three angels' messages. We'll look at that in just a minute. Okay, what time are we supposed to finish? Does anyone know? Where do we take a break? Is it 3.30 when we take our first break? 2.15? So the next one starts at 3.15? Oh, the next one, so we're great. We'll finish at 3.15 and we'll take a 15-minute break and we'll come back. Okay, the second characteristic then. So the first characteristic that we need to have individually and as a church is we need to have a clear identity. We need to know who we are and what it is God has called us to do. Characteristic number two, we need to have an urgent message. Do we have an urgent message to share with the world? Yes, we do. Where do we find that urgent message? All right, Revelation chapter 14. But before you go to Revelation chapter 14, take a look at Revelation chapter 10 and verse 11. You can read it there off the screen if you want. Revelation chapter 10, verse 11. And he said unto me, you must prophesy again, about or before many people, nations, tongues, and kings. Now, who is the he in the verse? Who's speaking in the verse? The angel. And who is the angel? Who's the me in the verse? That's John. So here is an angel speaking to John. And John, and he tells John, you must prophesy again before many people, nations, tongues, and kings. So that would mean then at some point in time, John was prophesying, meaning preaching prophecy, declaring prophecy. And then something happened. And then the message came, now you've got to do it again. So he was doing it. And then somehow something happened. So he stopped doing it. And then the angel said, all right, now you've got to keep doing it. 
Now, to find out the context of this, we go back early on in Revelation chapter 10. And what do we have described in Revelation chapter 10? An angel is seen coming down from heaven. In prophecy, what does an angel represent? A messenger. The Greek is angelos, means messenger. And so here is this messenger. He comes with a message. And if you look at the description of the angel in Revelation chapter 10, it's really a description of Jesus because he's clothed with the sun and so on, rainbow about his head. He has in his hand a little book that's open. And he sets his one foot upon the earth and his other foot upon the sea. Now, what does the sea represent in Bible prophecy? Multitudes of nations and kindreds of tongue. And the earth would be a sparsely populated place, just the opposite. So here is a message that comes from Jesus that has to be preached both in the densely populated areas of the world as well as the sparsely populated areas of the world. It's a message that has to go to all the world. And the message that has to go to all the world has something to do with a little book that's open in the angel's hand. Now, how do we know what book that is that's open in the angel's hand? Well, there's a couple clues that are given right in the chapter. So let's just look at a couple of them here quick. Revelation chapter 10. The first clue that we have is in verse 2. It says, and he had in his hand, what kind of a book? A little book. So that's the first clue. The book is little. Secondly, it had something to do, if you look over here in verse um, 5, and the angel whom I saw standing upon the sea and upon the land raised his hand to heaven and swore by him that lives forever and ever who created the heavens and things that are therein, the earth and the things that are therein, and the sea and the things that are therein, that there should be time no longer. So this little book is a little book, and this little book has something to do with time. And the third thing that you need to see here is verse 7. But in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, then the mystery of God will be finished, as he has declared unto his servants the who? The prophets. So this little book that's opening the hand of the angel, it's a little book, it's a book that has something to do with prophecy, and it's a prophetic book. So it's a little prophetic book that has something to do with a mystery that will be revealed. The little book is the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, and we'll see the significance of that here in just a few minutes. All right, go ahead and take a break. Be back uh, at uh, 3.30, and we'll dive into the message that God has given us to share with the world. This is exciting. All right. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.